0: Service Transformation Reinventing Service for Clients and Employees, hosted by Will Lombardi and Fred Jambukeshwaran.
1: Okay, we have another uh, engaging and great episode to bring you today. So Will Lombardi, again, and Fred Jambukeshwaran um on service transformation, really reinventing that client and employee experience. So we have a thrilling opportunity to chat with a leader in the design and transformation realm, Richard Dalton. I want to hand it over to Richard quickly to use our time effectively and focus on his insights and his experience. Just a couple of highlights on Richard. He has an extensive background, especially in the strategy design and transformation with several forward innovative companies and in in, in diverse environments like Capital One, Vanguard, USAA, and recently in the last few years with Verizon. His journey has been a testament of navigating like diverse landscapes of like, change, mastering that disruption, and really steering that those various service transformations that we've been talking about. So to maximize uh, our time, I want to swiftly pass the mic over to Richard. Richard, before we deep dive right into the topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps something outside of your professional Uh, day I always like to ask you know my son plays uh, baseball and I'm in charge of the walk-up songs so I'd love what would be your walk-up song whether it's going on to uh, speak or any sports that you play and why
2: yeah well first of all well Fred thanks for having me I'm very excited to talk about this uh this important topic you mentioned some of my professional career there Uh, people listening might be able to tell I'm not from the states originally, although my accent is really a little bit messed up now. I'm from the UK, moved to the states 25 years ago. Worked at some of those companies you talked about: Vanguard, USAA, Capital One, and and then now Verizon. Been head of design at most of those places. I'm currently head of consumer design at Verizon, where I lead a, a team of you know five or six hundred uh, design professionals, um, focusing on the experiences and the products that we uh, provide to our uh, you know 100 million or so. Uh, customers across the, the the States, my walk-up song, gosh, well, anybody that knows me uh, knows that I love to karaoke and I have actually lip sync performed on stage as Freddie Mercury in his iconic yellow jacket and white pants videos of that might be on my uh, Facebook page. And so I'm going to go with, we will rock you because if anybody's seen the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie um, and remembers the kind of creation of that song at least according to the movie I'm not sure how correct that is they'll remember that Brian May the guitarist from Queen actually created that song as a way to involve the audience in the singing of it right to pull in an arena of people like stomping their feet and, and clapping their hands and I think that that in particular, for what we're going to be talking about here around uh, service transformation is particularly relevant because it is something that the entire organization needs to be involved in. And it's all about audience participation. So I'm going to go with We Will Rock You.
1: I love that. And and really taking it back to the movie. If you would have asked me the question around the movie, I wouldn't have been able to draw that out. But now that you said it, I'm I'm remembering those, those scenes and great movie, great entertainer
0: um, at the same time um awesome awesome great job connecting the, the question in terms of walk on music with with our own theme today right <laughs> well as a
2: designer uh at heart that's a lot of what i do is make connections so i'm glad that that one
0: worked so richard one of the things that will and i often talk about and, and ask our guests is to tell us how they define service so if you can tell me when you think of service what does a service mean to you
2: Sure, well, you know, as a word, obviously it's got many contexts. I think the way that I think about it, and particularly with what the topic is today, is that I always think that customer interactions with any organization or entity or company fall into kind of three three types, really, right? There's sales interactions. There's service interactions and there's use interactions. So sales are fairly self-explanatory, right? Things that people do to buy a product from an organization or a company the the use interactions are the things that i would say that when you're using that product so in my current context for example a sales interaction would be you know buying the new iphone that comes out every year a use interaction might be you know using it to make a call or send a text or watch netflix or whatever anybody does on on their phones these days the service interactions i would say are things that our customers do to help manage their relationship and their products with us. So if something were to unfortunately go wrong, how to get that corrected, or if there needs to be a, a an update to a billing payment, or if I move and I need to change my address, or if I, you know, managing that relationship and product is what I would define as that service interaction. And I think that has components which are customer facing and also components which are employee facing as well, right? It's a two-sided relationship.
1: That's, I love that. And you're working right into how we believe in service too. And really important what you just said, right? Not just the client and CX is a big movement that's going on right now, rightfully so, but it's that employee side also. And I'm glad you've highlighted that. If I can just hit on this word transformation, another well-used term in many industries, and I'm sure a lot through your journey and your experiences as a leader In your experience, what are the drivers that
2: would create the need for a service transformation? I think three come to mind. One is a quality issue or opportunity, right? Whereby the desired service experience is not being achieved and there needs to be a a significant lift, which is beyond an incremental improvement. So that's one. Another one might be uh, cost right? Where cost to serve is too much and it needs to be kind of re- rethought or re- refactored. And then a third one might be because there might be future opportunities, right? Maybe the way that the service ecosystem is limiting the interactions that customers or again employees might be able to have and a new foundation needs to be put in place which then enables new opportunities going forward
1: i love that last one cuz you've created an open architecture there and and I want to want you know click on that a little bit throughout this discussion if i could i really want to get into your design mindset too and as we talked we started connecting on why design is so important but really in that service transformation as you just defined service love to just Get your perspective on what role does design play as you're thinking about this service transformation?
2: Yeah, so I think at heart, design is really about um, discovering opportunities or solving problems and really doing so with a human kind of lens, a human perspective. And again, we, we've we've talked about employees and customers, so that's why I use that term "human," right? So sometimes we use the word "user," but that can be a bit, uh, you know, clinical. And there's lots of jokes about other industries that use the word "user" out there in the design space. So I try to tend away from it. But so it's really about thinking through the human perspective and solving problems. You know, m- most of what is relevant when we're thinking about service. It is a human interaction, and 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 thinking about how can we optimize for the right outcomes we 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 want to achieve again for the employee and the and the customer. So really, it's problem solving through a human lens is is design, and that that's the unique uh, kind of perspective that we bring to a service transformation.
1: So I really like how you take in these sciences, if you would, of design and and these maybe theoretical approaches and put it into something that's more practical and then humanize it to your, to use your words. And really, again, focusing on that two-prong approach, client and employee. I'd love for the listeners to hear, maybe through your experience as a leader, an example of how you approach that, whether you were assessing the environment and it wasn't being approached that way, or you were coming in and you approached it that way.
2: Yeah, so one quite recent example that comes to mind of uh, kind of a human-centric approach to, to problem solving, which I think definitely touches on, on service, a little bit of sales as well, but um, is in the the setup of some of our home connectivity products here at Verizon. When you uh, get a home connectivity product from us, like Fios or some of our fixed wireless access products where you get a physical device that you need to set up in your home, sometimes people want you know, one of our technicians to come out and do it for them. A lot of the times they want to do it themselves from a self-setup perspective. And in the past, the way that that self-setup process has been done is, well, you know, we, we put all the stuff in a box, we send it to you, we give you some instructions and you kind of do it. But what we've done recently is we've taken a very, very human-centric approach to that and really thought through how we package things, how we guide people through things, how we uh, blend help in an app with the ability to kind of like understand where you need to place this in your home with like augmented reality and compasses in the app to be able to locate the best signal strength within your home for the routers. We've even taken the design of the routers into account in terms of like how easy are they to hold in one hand as you're setting them up? Where do we put labels? You know, how heavy are they? Even since we're talking about employees as well, a big part of our our sustainability and environmental considerations, or how do we make these router devices reusable and refurbishable, and how long does it take us to do that? So when we get them back from customers, it used to take half an hour or something to refurbish, take apart, clean, etc. A device. How can we make that so much quicker from an employee perspective, so that we can turn that around and that we can reuse more of the routers? So again, thinking about every human interaction with a product or service. Uh, And how we can best optimize that for whatever goals that we're seeking, which in many cases are how to make it easier for the human. That's not everything we do, right? We're also thinking about how we make it faster so that we can do more refurbishments in an hour and save ourselves some money as well. There's multiple goals. But a lot of it is about how we make it easier for the human being in the situation.
0: Richard, that's a great story. And it gets me thinking. And two questions come to mind. How did the organization decide that this was a thing to focus on? And sort of a corollary to it is as you're changing processes for the support staff and service professionals, how did you get them to embrace change? Because even while I imagine it creates capacity, change is hard and there's usually cultural components of it there too.
2: Yeah, change is hard, as you say. And I actually think the answer to to both parts of that question are are very linked, which is that the thing that got it prioritized and that draw drew our attention to the issue in the first place was the amount of failures of self-setup that we were seeing. So when we send the boxes out and people try and self-setup, they give us feedback that it's taking too long, they can't figure it out. They then end up taking a professional installation after trying to do it themselves, for example, and the rate at which that happens, or the rate at which they abandon the setup and send the device back and say, no, that's okay. I'll pass thanks. That was not acceptable to us. And they were all indications that the process itself was too onerous and wasn't designed from a human perspective. So that, that got us into prioritizing the work that we did to improve the process. And I mentioned a few minutes ago that we have multiple outcomes and multiple goals that we strive for. Ease from a, a human perspective is one of them, but cost savings can be another. And I think that's the thing that also helps change be easier to, uh, to enact within an organization if you can find those win-win situations. We, we rarely find that a easier human process, whether it's for a customer or employee, is bad for the business right? It generally is a situation where if you make something easier, you're also making it quicker or cheaper or, you know, some other business goal as well. And when you can find those instances where it's a win-win or a win-win-win, right? Better for the employee, better for the customer, better for the bottom line, then that really helps to drive change within the organization. The the,
1: the thing I heard there that I just wanted to encapsulate, which is really powerful, is in in some of the episodes we talked about this tension between efficiency that happens with a lot of companies and costs, and you mentioned that, it sometimes can drive it. But what you're saying, Richard, is is through the design approach, it's not the efficiency you're really playing, it's the capacity. And who's going to argue with freeing up capacity to do more? And what I love about that is a question we always had was this balance between innovation and the seamless service that needs to happen. So as you're creating disruption, innovation, and change, how do you maintain some type of seamless experience on the service side so that disruption isn't as obvious? And you just beautifully put that together on how you do that and, and linked it. I just love that.
2: Yeah, and I the, think it, I think it's about incremental change as well, right? And it's about balancing time horizons. We we, we can we can make quicker smaller changes that maybe are not even noticeable individually to a a human being an employee or a a customer but that do improve things over time and actually that is more of the preferred approach in the design uh, kind of space at the moment right back in the day when all of this was a little newer from a digital perspective like 15 20 years ago the design Kind of community was very fond of like new big new redesigns, right? It's like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna scrap the old website and put the new one up, and it's gonna be like that, and we'll transition people over. It, it, it was pretty quick to realize uh, that that was not effective, and so redesigns now tend to be kind of done very very incrementally there's a i forget the website but there's a story about a website changing its background color and doing it like incrementally so that it goes from i don't know what the colors were but like blue to red or whatever but nobody really noticed because it happened over a period of time and it happened in tiny tiny degrees now there, there are always those cases where a bigger change needs to be made for a variety of reasons and i think that in in those cases when it when a big change is unavoidable what we, what we really want to try and do is make sure that whatever the change is, is very aligned to what we call in the design industry, the, the customer or the employee, the human mental model. The way that somebody's brain works, the way that somebody's thinking about something—if you introduce a change which is not aligned with how they think about something, those are the changes where people are like, "It just doesn't make sense. I can't, I can't get from A to B here." Versus if you introduce a change that better aligns with somebody's mental model, there's almost a relief there of like, "Oh, that finally, this is the way I think about this thing," and and it becomes much more of a pleasant change or at least less difficult to adjust to than something that is a little bit, has a little bit more tension in it, in terms of uh, the adoption of that change.
1: What well, what you just did, uh, I was thinking anyways, you just like integrated design and change management together, like how to effectively do change management through a design approach. Like that that's what I took away from
0: that. So I have a, I have a question along a slightly different axis in your experience what role does standardization play in design and in experience design? Like, what have you seen that works? What doesn't work? Like, How do you approach it? Yeah, this is an
2: interesting one. Designers, I believe, have a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with standardization. In certain contexts, we love it because it it prevents us from having to solve the same problems over and over and over again. Those tend to be things which are, more granular in nature, or are more about a human's abilities to interact with uh, a, a digital system. And what I mean by that is like, what color are the buttons? Right? Or are the corners rounded? Or how does a dropdown work? Or like these, like the like, interface elements which in any given experience, like let's not spend hours and hours debating what color the button should be or how rounded the corners are. So we, we componentize those things. We create standards for them. And not only do we create standards for them, we create a design language for them, which is, if you will, uh, think of it as a, the Lego blocks, which we actually design and code so that they can just then be picked up by all sorts of design teams and implemented in their, in their interfaces and experiences. The, the hate part of the relationship is that designers are kind of intrinsically programmed and trained to not take a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Every human and their needs and their emotions are generally unique to some degree. And what we don't want to do is create a situation where we are using a solution which only half meets somebody's problem. By all means, if we've got exactly the same problem from exactly the same types of people, and then we should be solving it in similar ways or the same way, again, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. But if there are nuances of, well, the the thing that this customer or employee is doing is slightly different from the thing that this customer or employee is doing in these ways, then the solutions generally need to be different too. Maybe not completely different, but there needs to be a flavor of them. So at the at the kind of micro level, Love it. Right. Very much, you know, we're all in favor of standardization at the macro level. It's it's applied more judiciously.
0: That makes a, a ton of sense. And if you if you cascade from design down, like it designs if those components are standardized, then the tech teams can build standardized controls for those and drop them on the pages easily and like Lego box assemble their interfaces more seamlessly. And then to your point, let's make sure though that the, the big picture, that the, the, the actual figure we're constructing with the Legos fits the problem. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I went to a little bit of a devil's advocate as you were talking, Richard, being in financial services uh, for a fairly long time. As you know, regulation, compliance, standardization, there's a lot of value, especially with assessors, regulators, people coming to you and wanting to see very little variation at the point. But the way I heard you talk about it is you, you need both. There's p- parts where you need that standardization, but you can't inhibit innovation I, I forget who did the chart someone did this chart a while ago you have to get to a level of standardization and then disruption innovation and then standardize again and disruption and that's that's a growth that's a yield curve that goes the right way um is is am i am i hearing this the right way you're saying you need both you can't have one and not the other. There's unintended consequences.
2: That, that's right, and I and I think you're right that there are waves of standardization as new technologies and and new ways of thinking emerge. So I think it's it's more and more difficult these days because of the desire for personalization and because of the the rise, if you will, of the machines, the rise of AI and machine learning, and our desire to leverage that to create even more bespoke experiences so experiences as the segment of one if you will um where my flow through a process or engagement may be very different from your flow through a process as two customers who are in many ways maybe identical but you know the our solutions because of tailoring based on previous behavior or something we know about you might be different experiences. And so it becomes much more difficult to standardize there. And what we generally try and do then is we generally try and create standardization in the rule sets mm-hmm. and the the underlying ways that those experiences are dynamically created so that we are still having some sense of predictability with those things so that we can go through the legal and compliance Processes while still providing that degree of uh,
0: personalization to the different humans in the system. Yeah. So another question Do you have any examples of failures that related to service transformations, failures in experience design? Yeah. One of the uh,
2: financial service companies that I've been engaged with in the last 20 years, we were going through an exercise. As, a, as an organization, part of the organization, to understand what the customer experience, including the service components of it, actually was. Right. So we talk about experience all the time, much in the same way as we talk about service here. And, and in many cases, it's interpreted differently. And so what we were trying to do as an organization was kind of inventory all of the different um, uh, journeys, if you will, that customers engaged with the company on. But the design team was not engaged in that exercise. And what ended up happening, an external uh, consulting company was involved as well. And what ended up happening was the list that was created far more resembled internal business processes than external customer-centric journeys. So an example perhaps might be one of the, 300 rows in the spreadsheet would read uh you know process payment right versus pay my credit card bill which would have been a, a much more customer centric way of framing that and it's not just in the label either obviously although that does tend to kind of like influence the mindset it was all about a, a company centric way of processing a payment rather than what was on the customer's mind when they were paying their bill. Are they paying other bills at the same time? When in the month do they do this? Is it tied to when they get paid? What happens if it's like all of these questions that didn't come up because it was given more of a business process kind of perspective than a and, and so again you lose that human component there if you don't have the team which predominantly thinks from a human perspective involved. So we ended up with 300, you know, business processes, which then as they started to get worked, didn't have we didn't come up with the right outcomes. We, they weren't made easier. They may have been made quicker or cheaper from the business perspective to process, but they weren't made easier to do from a customer perspective, which impacts net promoter score, customer satisfaction, uh, employee satisfaction as well. By the way, because you know unhappy customers, unhappy employees. So that that's a, a bit of a, a failure story uh, from the dim and distant past.
0: Well, that that's a really good example, and it kind of highlights how a company that's trying to do a client experience transformation without the right design and the right design thinking is just doing efficiency. They're just making their internal processes better to your point, like it'll be more efficient, but you're not really transforming for the client.
1: Being a former contact center leader, a customer service leader, that drives a lot of unneeded interactions and phone calls too, and transfers, right? You listen to the customer calling in, that sounds like a very simple service. But because we turned our internal processes out into the cu- to the customer, it doesn't sound very easy for the customer. It be- just becomes a more difficult experience. You don't get your first contact resolution. You get this 40%, uh, you know, 50% transfers, right? Unneeded. And, and then it's the opposite of efficiency, to your point. So great example of how you need to effectively do design.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the benefits of a CX transformation is a little bit of like a flattening of the experience from a client's perspective. And it sounds like they didn't do that. They just focused on internally, let's just get better, not realizing that you're not actually looking at the client experience and bringing all the parts of the organization together in a cohesive way for the client.
2: Yeah. I often, I often think of in terms of um, dominoes when we're, we're talking about this type of stuff. And I think that we think about the the, all of the dominoes that represent the internal business processes of, a, of an organization. And, and, and knocking one over at any point in the line can ultimately knock over a customer or employee facing domino that impacts their experience. But it also works in reverse you knock over a customer or employee facing domino and make that a bad experience, it tends to then ripple through, as Will just said, the rest of the organization, making everything more inefficient and actually costing you more money at the end of the day as well. So it's like one of those domino chains that works in both ways. So so I love the analogy. You're exactly right. It's
0: a great analogy.
1: We're going to get squeezed for time here. And uh, one question to talk about a little bit is... You know, there's various environments, maturity of environments, and some have well-respected, mature design functions. Some are thinking about it and others don't even know how to start. How would you help leaders think about how to effectively create a design function? And what does that operating model look like?
2: Well, look, I think that all organizations are different, right? They are all they all have different DNA and what works in one is not necessarily what works in another. I've seen two approaches though, uh, one a lot more common than the other, n- neither more successful or not because it just depends on what organization you're in. But one is the kind of top-down, is the rarer approach, the top-down approach, where somebody in the organization at a senior enough level could be the CEO, could be the board, could be somebody very senior uh, in, in another part of the organization, kind of gets, you know, gets the, the design uh religion, if you will, and really becomes a an advocate for it and is willing to take the leap and is willing to say, you know what? I we believe that a better human experience is a better business experience, and we're going to invest in that, and we're going to stand up with the customer experience and design teams and the associated functions to, to do that and to invest in it. And that's fantastic if you're in an organization like that. A lot of these organizations are, are typically founder-led organizations. Again, I won't name names, but there are some out there which are very famous for taking this top-down approach. The one that is, I think, a bit more common, especially within uh, large enterprises, is more of the bottom-up approach, where somewhere in the organization, there's a, a kernel or a seed of design activity, and somebody can use that to show value. In all the ways we just talked about, hey, I've just improved this business interaction with our customers or this employee exp- and look at the metrics I've been able to change with that, right? And multiple metrics across the board. I made it better for the human and I made it better for the bottom line and it's quicker and it's more efficient, et cetera. And then to use that to then multiply, right? And say, well, look, we did it. We did that. We made all these improvements in this small area here. We could scale that across this. Uh, you know, and, and when you start to then scale that, you then start to be able to have these conversations around now we can put some foundations in place so that we're not just doing 100 individual efforts. We're now going to put some infrastructure in place so that we can even multiply the value of those efforts. And so we can do 500 different things for the price of 100 because we're going to think more enterprise wide, right? And so, but using some uh, use case, and some specific highlight or some specific activity to really make the case and to ride on those coattails, if you will, from a bottom up perspective.
1: I, I even as I'm, I'm picturing it as you're saying that last part and I can imagine for another day another discussion the efficiencies that come out of it the you know the, the creativity because you you're bringing more ideas together to leverage each other and you're getting in front of it versus waiting for something to happen and then fixing it and troubleshooting it or trying to iterate through an event it's great advice and I love the diversity that you said if one end is top down the other end is bottoms up and uh, to and there's probably other approaches in between. So appreciate that.
0: So Richard, as we're wrapping up, I'd love to invite you to share a piece of advice you would give to leaders that are embarking on a service and operations transformations. So I, I
2: think I would say one of the biggest things I've seen that has that is kind of causally tied to the success of these types of transformations is to resource it properly. I've seen too many of these things attempted by saying, oh, there's a whole bunch of people that are already got one or two day jobs. Let's have them do it as a you know a third job or a side of desk project and spread them too thin across everything. I'm a big fan of, of not spreading resources in like a micron thin layer of peanut butter across a whole bunch of stuff. I'd rather you know like let's concentrate resources in a specific area, enable people to be successful at something and then and then figure out how to scale it across everything as we just talked about with the design organization conversation from a bottom up perspective. So I think the the big piece of advice there is is resource it correctly even if that means biting off smaller chunks so that you can then do them properly rather than trying to do everything at
0: uh, at once. That's a great piece of advice. When you tackle design, tackle it well, give it the resources, give it the focus, do a good job demonstrate it and then scale it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when we think about the different
2: roles that we might need from a and different skill sets that we need from a design and, and service transformation perspective, that becomes important as well. Like people are not uh in, in many cases, people are not fungible across Uh, different skill sets. We might need different types of designers that focus more on the interface versus there's actually a function called service design, right? Which is thinking about how do we design uh, almost holistically in a way and connect front office and back office and uh, how all the business processes work and where the data is coming from and like service designers it's a whole practice which is I think pretty fundamental to the the kind of transformation space we're talking about and thinking about moving entire organizations forward rather than just moving the the glass right the interfaces forward because at the end of the day that's that's important but it's fairly it can be superficial in a way. If you just focus on creating a better screen or a website, right, you need to go deeper than that. And and it really is connected throughout the entire organization, as we've been talking about.
1: Richard, I know we said we're running out of time, but if I could just steal a couple more minutes, I do want to ask you a talent question. I'm sure listeners are out there looking at you as a leader, someone who's leading, you said 600 to 800 people. If I'm someone that's in the service transformation, wants to get into service transformation type environment, operations, What's some advice you would give us around skills and talent development?
2: Well, I think that there's there's kind of formal skill sets, right? Which, in particular, from a design perspective, range from designing pixels on the glass, right, for websites and apps, all the way through to service design, thinking about the the front and back ends of of experiences and how they all connect deeper in the organization. And there's a whole wealth of uh, roles between there, which you know. 20 years ago, there were really no college or university programs focused on those types of things, or no, not a lot of professional development. Now, there's a whole bunch of organizations that do professional development and training and university courses on all aspects of design. I also though, think that it's a very much an attitude and mindset. And I think that from a design and a, and a service transformation perspective, curiosity, I think, is one of the key qualities that need to be present when you're thinking about any kind of problem solving, being curious, we didn't really talk a a lot about the value of research, for example. And that research can be formally done by research professionals, uh, ethnographic studies or observational studies on how people are currently doing something. But it's also something that needs to be present in every member of the team in terms of that curiosity, having that desire to kind of understand, well, why is that happening this way? Why is somebody doing it? What are they thinking? uh and that's a constant question that that we encourage our design teams and by that i mean professional designers and all of the other people on teams that are end up being you know teams of designers because everybody has a an element of design in them right everybody's a designer to some degree that curiosity and the asking of why is a key question we encourage all the time
1: i love that and and, and just to like highlight that we're going to talk more about talent and culture maybe have you back i know we have a few guests we're going to really tease that curiosity attribute out. There's an element of creating that psychological safety we continue to talk about where people feel empowered to be curious. And I think that's what you're saying also is that not only is it the skills, you got to lead the culture of environment that enables that curiosity.
2: I love, yeah, I love that word. 100% and I, I could talk for a lot longer on those kind of topics. I'd, I'd love to come back uh, and dig more more deeply into that. This has been a really great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate the invitation, Will and Fred, to come on and have these uh, really important conversations because I think that these are really conversations that can change things for human beings in, in you know significant ways. And as a as a designer at heart, uh, again, that's what I'm trying to do is have impact on people's lives, both professional and personal, and make them better. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. This is okay. awesome. The
0: honor was ours, if I have had to say. So thank you. It's been wonderful having you here, and Richard. If folks want to learn more about your work, learn more about you, is there anything that I can you you can share? Or we can direct them to.
2: Yeah, people can look me up on on LinkedIn. I post pretty regularly. In fact, at the end of last year, I started doing a. A week in the life of a design leader series on LinkedIn, where I try and post generally every week, maybe every other week sometimes, on some of the activities that I do as a design leader at a Fortune 20 organization. Actually, my team here find it pretty helpful as well to know what I'm
0: up to. People can find me on LinkedIn. I want to thank you again for your time and for really insightful discussion and conversation. And for our listeners, I'm going to take a few moments and call out some of the points that really stuck out for me. So one was going beyond client centric, thinking about that human centric design and what you called a win, 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 which I thought was a really nice way to put it, which is like a triple win on employee experience, client experience, and bottom line, win, win, win. Then your example of what happens when an organization is too inward facing, too focused on just internal efficiency, how you can end up shifting effort to the customer and actually taking the client experience and employee experience backwards, making those experiences worse. The last point I wanna call out, and plus one, something you said, was creating a culture of curiosity. Because I think in a world where business is always changing, technology is always changing, the world's always changing, I think it's really important to foster and promote that culture of curiosity so folks are leaning into change and helping organizations to adapt more fluidly. So I thought it was a really great point on curiosity, I'm personally a big fan of curiosity, so loved it. And with that, I want to thank all of our listeners. You'll find Richard's LinkedIn profile, mine, and Will's in the description. If you have any feedback, if you have any questions for us, or would like to be a guest on the podcast, please reach out to Will and myself. Thank you all. Thank you all.